You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Thursday, January 21st, 2021. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing, and I'm Ed Harrison. I'm going to be shortly joined by Michael Leibowitz, who's a portfolio manager at RIA Advisors. But first, with the news of the day, we've got Haley Drasnan. Hey, Ed. What do the markets look like with Biden as president? All three major indices notched all-time highs yesterday on Wednesday, and the NASDAQ was at a record high again today on Thursday. With tech stocks leading this gain ahead of earnings reports, we saw IBM and Intel report today and have both rallied this week. The S&P 500 was relatively flat on the day, and the Dow was down slightly, and that may be because of the relatively weak jobless claims data that was released this morning. Claims remain high, 900,000 Americans filed for first-time unemployment benefits on a seasonally adjusted basis. They were down slightly from the prior week's upswing when claims rose to 926,000. Yes, it's a good sign that the number fell, but good is a relative term here. Millions of Americans still need government to help make ends meet, and there haven't been any real improvements for months. Although Wednesday's inauguration of President Biden did spur hopes for more stimulus, help really can't come fast enough for those who are unemployed. The Biden administration will have to get to work right away on the labor market. He has indeed promised to create jobs through investments in infrastructure and clean energy. But again, that won't really solve the immediate jobs crisis. We did see, however, clean energy stocks go up today on Biden's first full day in office. He is moving to bring the U.S. back into the Paris Climate Accord. SunPower, Enphase, Brookfield Renewable Partners, Solar Edge were all up, just to name a few. In fact, Weston Nakamura of the Real Vision Exchange Hivemind noted that over 50% of SunPower's float was sold short, and he viewed the Biden inauguration as a potential catalyst for that. Also, infrastructure stocks are on my radar on the heels of President Biden's comments of making a big infrastructure push. Again, ultimately, the vaccine rollout will help the real recovery in the jobs market. But until then, it's about supporting those still out of work while countries continue to battle the ongoing pandemic and rising number of cases. The backstop from governments and central banks, plus the expectations for a strong economic recovery in the second half of this year, have tempered some nerves in the market. We saw the VIX down over 25% from the highs of this new year. Back to you, Ed. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Thanks, Haley. And Michael, welcome back to Real Vision. Thank you. It's great to be back again. Different yeah, circumstances, you know, I, I but I'm back. 
I, I didn't talk about you as being a, the, an author at Real Investment Advice, but uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about some of the things that you've been writing over there. Seems like my last few articles have been inflation-based. I, I tend to get, I, I put out an article every Wednesday. You can go see them at realinvestmentadvice.com. And I tend to get into habits, valuations, inflation, the Fed, the Fed. Seems like I write a lot about the Fed because that's what's driving markets. Um, but recently, I've been a little bit more inflation-based. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I questioned why the Fed wants inflation. Who does inflation serve? Does it serve the entire population or does it hurt? It, in my opinion, it hurts a good portion of the lower and middle income classes. It creates wealth inequality. And then this past week on Wednesday, yesterday, I published one on monetary velocity. Yeah. I've seen a lot of graphs on M1, right? M1's a hockey stick. It just goes straight up like that. So why is there no inflation? And that's because velocity is a hockey stick turned upside down going the other way, which is they're you know, effectively counteracting each other right now, at least. And by the way, what is the reason for that uh, counteractivity? I mean, M1 going up, it, uh, you know, they're trying like mad to, uh, to, you know, get some oomph in the economy, but velocity going down, what's happening? So it's a question of where the money goes, right? So, so I, in the article, I have a simple example. You can print 10 zillion, I forgot what number I used, 10 zillion dollars. And you can give every person $50,000 and you tell them that they have three days to spend it or it goes away. And then whoever gets that cash has another three days and it goes away. Your monetary velocity is going to be off the charts. You're going to have inflation like you've never seen before. The flip side is they could take that money and dig a hole and throw it in the hole and bury it and put five security guards around it. And it doesn't matter. Right. They could print as much money as they want. So if the money doesn't get out into the real economy. In a large enough size, some of it is right. Some of it definitely is, but if it if it's right, the treasury is sitting on one point five trillion dollars right now. That you know was part of the new monetary base, so that's part of it. Uh, consumers, we've seen credit card revolving debt decline pretty rapidly, um, so, and we've seen I think a lot of money pouring into the asset markets. So we've seen asset market inflation, but not the price of bread and milk and eggs and the, the, the stuff we buy in our everyday life. Um, Interesting, you know, because uh, I think before this, you know, a few hours ago, I was talking to you about uh, what you're writing at uh, Real Investment Advice. And I told you I saw a chart from Goldman that right. uh, Jim Bianco put up on uh, Twitter and basically, it's a compilation of all the non-profitable technology companies and you know what they're doing in the market. So when right. you say asset prices are going up, this is the chart that, for me, speaks to it, this Goldman Sachs non-profitable technology index. And you said you've seen that exact same chart and you wanted to talk to that. Yeah, yeah. It's a great chart because one of the themes that we've seen over the last, especially the last month or so, is the more risky assets, and a lot of that's within the stock market, right, SPACs, but a, a lot of stocks that, a lot of companies that don't make money that there's pie in, a, pie in the sky dreams about what they may do in the future, but their money losing companies are the ones that have done the best. 
And likewise, you know, energy companies have done really well. They're still down 30% from where they were pre-COVID. But some of these companies are up three, four, five times where they were before COVID. So, the, you know, it leads you to kind of wonder, like, okay, maybe we're in a recovery and we get back to where we were before COVID, which you can even question that. But if we assume that, well, then the stock, assuming all else equal, should be at roughly the same level we were at last February or March. Right. And that's not the case. Right. Some of these come like Tesla. Tesla is a well-known one. It's a, now a, one of the biggest components of the S&P 500. Right. They're priced as much. They, their market cap is equal to the market cap of just about every auto company combined. It, 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 none of this makes a lot of sense. And as Jim Bianco showed, the risky assets are the ones that are catching fire. You know, he it was him or sentiment trader put out a chart recently showing the enthusiasm for penny stocks. We've seen call volume just off the charts. That's about the risky of trade. That's the riskiest riskiest of trades you can put on, right? They're just outright buying calls. It's very binary. You can make two, three, four, five hundred percent, or you can lose everything. And that's the nature of this market. And it's, you know, I think the other thing that's been pretty, and this has been going on for a while, back to May, June, this right. massive sector rotation. And it's very quick and very damaging. It, 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 you know, we're seeing investors move quickly from one group of stocks to another group of stocks, to a third, to a fourth group, and leaving some behind and helping others. Um, even yesterday, the the forgotten fang stocks, remember, they were all the rage in the early summer and spring. They've been forgotten for the last few months. Yesterday, they they did so much better than the market. They drove the market higher. But if you look at like the S&P was up almost 1% more than the equal weighted S&P. And that's because of those five, six, seven stocks, the Apples, Microsofts, um, et cetera, Netflix. Um, the fangs. The fangs. Or fangs with it, a T know, now. Yeah, they, they have they, right exactly. They've added others ones to to that. You know, two two um, philosophers, two econo economists. Uh, I'm calling them philosophers because they, you know, they, they have uh, economic philosophy that I think is great. Um, one school of thought, the Austrian school. Another, Hyman Minsky. Uh, I thought of when you were talking about this asset price inflation because when you think about Keynesian economics. And we talk about aggregate demand and so forth. Really, what the Fed is doing and what people are thinking in general is we want to deal with aggregate levels and we want to get those aggregate levels up. And, you know, to the degree that we can use monetary policy to get there, we're going to do that. Uh, the problem, however, is, is to me, when you talk about these risky companies, immediately I think to Austrian economics, where they say, actually, it's these uh, projects, these investments with long lead times that are actually more favored in environments where the interest rate is low or where it's being suppressed to artificially low levels, like when real interest rates are negative, as they are now. Uh, right. Another interesting way to look at this is probably Hyman Minsky. He talked about you know, the two price systems. He says that you know, there are current output prices which are, they can be determined by just a cost plus a markup. And you set them at a level that will generate profits. That's what you would do if you're Procter & Gamble. But then he talked about a second price system. Um, that, that's the one for assets that can be held through time. Except for money, uh, these assets are expected to generate a stream of income and you know possibly capital gains. 
And so the important uh, point is that the prospective income stream can't be known with certainty. So there's a certain subjectivity uh, around that. And so Minsky argued that uh, what one's willing to pay depends on the amount of external finance necessary. That's where the leverage comes into play. That's right. where these interest rates come into play. The two, really, you can marry them really well with what you were talking about with regard to these risky assets being inflated the most. Right, right. And look, there's also just a lot of hope, right? It, it's it's not just the financing, but it's, well, every person's going to have three electric vehicles in 2030. Well, then, yeah, Neo and Tesla are worth a lot more than they're worth today. But that's not what's going to happen, most likely. I mean, we don't know, but that's what I think a lot of investors are buying. And quite honestly, I mean, I have my I have three kids. Two, my two boys both trade stocks on. Um, I, I think Robinhood. I don't even know where they do it, and they're buying companies like Neo or Tesla. They don't. They don't even know that Neo is a Chinese company. They don't understand. They don't know how to look at a balance sheet or an income statement. It's gambling. Sports gambling is off the charts right now. It, it's just we're in an environment, a speculative fervor environment. Not that some of these companies won't be great companies, right? Microsoft did really well in the late 1990s, and it took them, I believe, 13 years for the price to get back to where they were. And that was a great company back then, and it's a great company in 2013, and it's a great company today. But when you price those future cash flows at such a high watermark, you just can't attain them. And look, there'll be a company or two that comes out of this that was maybe it was at, you know perfectly well priced or underpriced, but you can't have this many companies that are going to become the next Amazon. That's not the way it works. Right, and, and you know, going back to the original point uh, where we started this, I think we were talking about inflation, the Fed trying to generate inflation right. in this context, uh, and maybe potentially not really wanting inflation. What does inflation do in your perspective? Uh, to this whole nexus uh, that we're talking about? So I think the problem, well, I, I, you know, the Fed has a problem. The Fed doesn't have the problem. The Fed's trying to solve the problem. The problem is there's too much debt, right? So how do you get, how do you counteract that? You can default, which we know isn't going to happen. They're not going to allow it to happen, nor will the government. You can practice austerity, which there's, I can't think of one politician that's, that's going to sign up for negative GDP for five years to have that period of austerity, or you can inflate, right? Inflation's the oldest way out of debt, right? You, you raise people's salaries, you wait, raise everything else, and the onus of debt declines. Same for the government. Their tax revenue increases quicker than their payments. So inflation is what's on their mind. And inflation is, is, seems to be what they're settling on. The, and inflation is what's driving the market now. Everyone wants to bet that the Fed's going to get it this time, that this is the time they're going to get inflation. And implied 10-year in, implied inflation expectations today hit, I think it was 218, 219. Right. That's about the high watermark of the last three or four years. So the market thinks the Fed is starting to generate inflation. The problem is the Fed doesn't really generate inflation. What the Fed does via QE is as much as we'd like to say they print money, they really don't. They, they give reserves to the banks. Right. That's what they're doing. And it's incumbent upon the banks to print money. And if the banks make loans, every loan is new money. Right. So as the banks create money, 
the the you know that's when you get real money entering the system and the banks have no incentive right now to create money right if you look at the bank earnings so much of it is coming from trading or taking down reserves it's not coming from making loans to schmoes like me and you ed it's it it's 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 this speculative fever is also helping them and that's why blackrock and goldman did very well wells fargo didn't do as well cuz they're not as big a trading power um so when you look at what the Fed's doing, they're doing QE. That money is not – no one's handing us checks from the Federal Reserve. That money isn't being spent. So it's a question of how is that money transmitted into the economy. And that's why I think we have this speculation because that's how that, where that money – it leads to margin debt. It leads to other kind of speculative debt. And, and then just the whole kind of the Fed's got our back. They won't ever let the market right. go down. Look what just happened again. The market was down 30, 40 percent, whatever it was in March. And the Fed came in to the rescue. They just did whatever it took. And and this time they bought corporate bonds. They bought they bought other things we didn't think they would buy. So I, I don't think it's a stretch to say they would buy stocks either. Right. I mean, they, they pretty much have the, the blueprint buying corporate bonds, buying junk. Buying Apple, I don't know which is worse, buying junk or buying Apple. Apple, which is sitting on more cash than they can ever use, or buying junk bonds. I mean, it's it's crazy, but this is they want inflation. And the question to get inflation is will will velocity pick up? This kind of goes back to where we started. Right. So if you look at the monetary equation, it's famous. And what it really says is that prices and, and output equal the money supply and velocity, the percentage change in all four. And you can basically, so you can rearrange the formula so that prices equal money supply plus velocity uh, minus economic growth. So let's just take economic growth out of this. And your inflation component, once there's no you know, economic output is not part of it, is money supply plus velocity, the change, year over year change in both. And if you look at a graph, they're they're almost exact opposites. If you've ever been up, uh, like in the northwest Canada, Banff Mountains, right? You you get these beautiful pictures where you got a lake and you got mountains, and then you got the reflection of the mountains, and you could flip the picture around, and you don't know which is which. And that's what a graph of the two of them looks like over the last thirty years. Now, if you go back to the seventies, you can see that wasn't the case. There were two lines that were that were both positive, first of all, and they weren't necessarily offsetting each other. So that was when we had inflation because money supply wasn't off the charts, but it was high, you know, relatively high. Velocity was positive. You add them together and factor in economic output, and you get that's why we got some of that inflation. Today, we have this massive spike in M1 that we started with at the beginning of this interview, which is the hockey stick. And then we got the hockey stick facing down, which is velocity. So the money is not circulating through the economy. And that's what's going on, right? Again, you know, we, we talked earlier, people are spending money, but they're not spending like crazy. Uh, but, but what matters is tomorrow, not today. So I was I was with a friend a few days ago, and his economic he's not an economist or finance guy, but he thinks the economy is going to go crazy in the summer and the fall right. because everyone's going to get out of lockdown, and they're going to just do all kinds of things, right? Well, what are we going to do? We're going to go on vacation. We go on vacation every year. We're going to go out to dinner. We've been taken in. 
right? So yeah, there'll, there'll be more spending, but will the velocity pick up? And that's the million dollar question. And if the velocity picks up, will the Fed slow down the pace of money supply growth? Now, again, something important to consider is that money supply growth, it's not the money supply, it's the growth, the change in the money supply. So once we get to March and April, that growth, that year-over-year growth rate is going to start declining because now you're comparing to when the first the Fed really started putting their foot on the gas pedal. But Ed, if you remember back in September, October, the Fed started lowering rates and doing QE with treasury bills. So at that point, the money supply started rising. So you know that, that's important to think about that they were low, they lowered rates three times well before COVID affected anything, right. and then they then they 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 slammed on the gas right in March and April when they immediately dropped rates to zero. They did QE like we've never seen before, and they've been doing it. And they're so they say they're going to keep going 120 billion a month, as far as the eye can see. But at some point, we're, we're going to see if, in, you know, if velocity picks up, they're going to be forced to slow down because the ramifications, the consequences of inflation are not – I don't think they really want what they're asking for. I think they want some sweet spot, 2 right. 2.5%. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Well, let's talk about that in a second, but I want to go to the elephant in the room there because obviously you're suggesting or outright saying that the you know, the risk of inflation is more muted than would be suggested by the implied uh, break, you know, the break evens, the implied uh, inflation rates on break evens. Yeah, I mean, the implied inflation rate is 2.18%. Maybe it's a little high, but it's not off the charts, right? It's if you go back and look at five years, it's at the upper end of the band. So I wouldn't say implied inflation yet is wrong. I would say the market is wrong. If you look at some of these materials stocks, these industrial stocks, stocks that benefit from inflation, especially the material stocks that are now 20% above where they were pre-COVID, that's pricing in inflation. If you look at Staples, Kellogg's, uh, General Mills, some of those companies that unfortunately have to take that inflation, they're, they're getting hit pretty hard. Right. So so the market's pricing in, I think uh, the stock market is pricing a lot more inflation in than the bond market. Now, here's now here's what makes this really tricky, Ed. Who's the biggest buyer of tips right now? It's the Federal Reserve. Who's the biggest buyer of nominal bonds, of nominal Treasury bonds? It's the Federal Reserve. How do you compute the implied inflation rate? You you take one, you know, you you subtract one from the other. And what do you get? You get like like the market for interest rates. The tips implied inflation rate is not what the market thinks of inflation. Right. It has a lot to do with what how the Fed is affecting that. It's not what the Fed thinks of inflation. It's how are their purchases and what maturities are they buying? What what proportion are they buying nominals to tips? That's what's in fe- that's what's affecting that number. So, does the market think two point one eight is the implied inflation rate? Could be. Could also be two point four. Could be one point six. 
And that's the problem. They're taking, they take away signals from the market that are very important for capitalism, especially interest rates, right? Interest rates are the cost of money. That's what drives capitalism. And that, that is the most important thing that we need for, for free markets to tell us what their cost is. And no one has any idea what the real cost of money is anymore because it's been so tortured. So, you know, uh, you mentioned that the Fed, you know, they want this sweet spot uh, between uh, Scylla and Charybdis. They want to, like, steer the path between those two shoals. Uh, to me, that sounds right. But what are the what are the consequences of too low inflation and too high inflation for the Fed that they're a- afraid of? Well, uh, I think too low. I don't. Uh, they want more inflation. So too low inflation in their mind means they're not doing enough. So here's the problem with not doing enough. Not doing enough, I think they're going to realize means they're not doing enough of what they need to do, not buying enough bonds. They can increase the bond buying. But I think what they're going to realize is they need to do QE in a different way. And Mm. Ben Bernanke has the famous speech where they're going to dump money out of helicopters, right? They need to move closer to that. They need to somehow print money and get it spent, not get let the banks the get it, get it to whoever it is, not let the banks determine the money supply, but get it to the people. Right. So so my fear is that if if we get back to a deflationary shock and rates start going down, that they start thinking about QE in a different way. Also, keep in mind if if the yield curve starts collapsing on itself again and you know the front end's going nowhere right it's pegged at zero right because we know the fed's not raising rates anytime soon so two and three year rates are not going anywhere fives aren't really going anywhere what if tens and thirties drop all the way back down and we get a flat curve is the fed going to want to increase the amount of bonds they're buying and and push yields negative because that's going to kill the banks and that's who owns the federal reserve right so they've got themselves in quite the quandary if we go back into a deflationary spiral uh, on what they would do. And they would probably have to do something different on the and flip side. The, on, on the other side of that, you know, uh, on the three percent side, say the four percent side. So the four percent side is, well, can they keep interest rates where they are? Will there, will there be any investors willing to buy a one percent bond when inflation is four percent? And that, you know, that clearly makes no sense. Who's going to sign up to lose 3% a year in purchasing power? Right. It, it, it's silly. But- or, you, uh, or, you know, they could buy everything and, and keep the, the, the prices there. You know, YCC, yield curve control. And then maybe gold is uh, and other hard currencies uh, benefit as a result. Yeah, well, what I would say is they not only have to keep treasuries there, they got to keep mortgages there, and they are buying mortgages. They got to keep corporate debt there. They have to keep all these other forms of debt at those same levels, too, because the whole economy is predicated on the same debt, right? I mean, just think about the mortgage market. The, the housing market's on fire. Some of that is because you can get a two, two and a half percent mortgage. What happens if mortgage rates go to 4%? It's not going to be so free flowing anymore, right? Uh, so, so, so what do you do to protect yourself? Right. And that, I think that's one reason why that's my question. Yeah. So how do you invest against that? What's what's your portfolio, your asset allocation? So my, I personally like gold and I've liked it for a while now. 
um, because it's really a short on the Fed. I recognize the Fed is in a trap. The Fed is really trapped. You know, as we just discussed, they they kind of want their porridge just right. And if they had a dial and they could make their porridge just the right temperature, that would be great. But they can't. Right. That That's not the way it works in the real world. And as they know, because inflation has run well below where they've wanted it for such a long time and they want it too low. So, you know, you have other options. You have you can buy land, you can buy there's all kinds of anti-dollar you can buy you can buy other currencies but you look but at what as a portfolio they, manager what are you doing like at ria what, so, uh, what how, how are you allocating uh, so, on, so your, we held we recently sold our gold and gold miners a couple of weeks ago we uh, adhered to some technical stop losses and we got taken out of them we will certainly get back into them we plan on holding gold for most likely, assuming things play out the way we think they do, and technically gold holds up, that we will hold gold, gold miners, for a large majority of the next few years at least. We'll see where it goes. And, and I, you're not a technical uh, guy, meaning that basically you're in an environment, just going back to what we were talking about earlier, we're in an environment now where you see uh, you know, those, those tech companies that have no profitability like this and then hockey sticking up where you're saying we can't trade on value anymore. We've got to look at the technicals. Is that that's, why you are thinking technicals? Yeah, that's the problem is that fundamentals are almost meaningless anymore. No, one, no one's trading on fundamentals, right? It's all passive momentum chasing. So we have two choices. We can buy value and go nowhere and underperform and lose our clients or we can try to participate in the market as much as we feel comfortable. And we're doing that, but we need to rely on our technicals. We set stop losses, we have limits, we, we have some proprietary technical, technical indicators that we use that help us kind of follow the money flows. It helps us follow developing trends, which sectors, which stocks within the sectors are doing what. And that, that has proven very helpful but it also can make you a little uncomfortable. It can at times force you out of things that you that you think of as more buy and hold, like gold. And it can keep you in things or put you into things that just don't make sense fundamentally, very high PEs. But, but there's a process and that process helps us sleep at night, but it also helps us manage a portfolio that will be subject to a lot of volatility. Um, yeah, I, I don't envy you at this particular juncture in terms of uh, dealing with client money when you're in the middle of a mania and no profit companies are the ones that are going up. I mean, yesterday we saw shares up. Today, again, after a little bit of respite, shares were up again. It's right. just, you know, a nonstop 75% on the NASDAQ or, or on the S&P, 100% on the NASDAQ uh, it's from the bottom in March. Right, right. Um, one last thought. Uh, talk to me about the Fed having uh, people's back, uh, because if you're trading on the, the technicals, um, where does it go from here if uh, the, the bottom falls out? I mean, unfortunately, I think the Fed, you know, the Fed now, uh, it's almost like that's, you know, the, the, they're focused on employment and price stability. They've kind of weaved into that financial market stability. Um and that, I think, is their new mantra. That's what they've learned 
you know, that's what they practiced in 2008. A couple various points in between 2008 and 2020, you know, including 2019. And now that's that's what they learned, that we can levitate markets when they need levitating. I mean, the economy can't afford for the stock market to fall 50% and stay down there. These pensions are already grossly underfunded. People's 401ks will be essentially underfunded for what they need. And they get much less tax dollars, right, from capital gains. So I, I think they think of as a stock, the stock market as a critical, a critical thing that they need to manage to. So what will they do? The first 5 to 10%, they'll do nothing. They'll say, that's probably a good thing. Stocks were overvalued. They were a little right. exuberant. That's perfect. You know, but they keep going, right? That's what we find, that, that stocks just keep going um, one direction or another. Then what will they do? They'll probably try to do a little more QE. But at some point, they're going to go back, okay, we'll buy corporate bonds. That's not doing it. They'll buy stocks, right? They have the structure in place. Whatever they did to buy corporate bonds, I don't really understand how that's any different than buying stocks. It's not legal. It's not in their, in their charter, in their act, in the Fed Act. But they did it, it with, in concert with the Treasury. And by the way, who's running Treasury now? Janet Yellen. And I, I don't think, I think that was a conscious decision. It wasn't because she was necessarily the most qualified to run treasury. It's because she was the most qualified person to run treasury that knows how the Fed works inside and out. It was probably between her and Bernanke, quite honestly. Very interesting stuff. Uh, uh, Michael, we're gonna have to leave it there for today, but uh, uh, you're all in. And uh, you're waiting for the uh, the storm to come, it sounds like to me. All in and itching to get out. <laughs> <laughs> good, good to talk to you. Thank you, Ed. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.